The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. If you've got your uh, Bible with you, turn with me to uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17, and reading from the New King James Version, verses 9 through 14. Verse 9 through 14. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets rich, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. I want to focus our attention this morning on verse 9, verse 10, and verse 14. Verse 9, 10, and 14. As a Christian evangelist and apologist, it's often my privilege to be sharing the gospel message with skeptical people. And it's often objected that Christianity is somehow divorced from life. Many of the popular objections to faith center around this idea that the message of the Bible isn't really about reality. It's divorced, essentially, from real life and therefore has a relevance problem. It's not relevant. It's a form of spirituality that uh, may be interesting to some, but essentially it's a book of antiquated history of dubious reliability and essentially mythology, parable stories that for many, they are puzzled that people find anything in it at all. And this is one of the popular things we face today as evangelists and as apologists. And add to that the fact that people are busy. This is very very much a thing that struck me since being in North America, even more so than in England. Getting people into your home or going to their homes is not easy because people are so busy. Partly because of the 404, no doubt, but there are other reasons. We're taken up with ourselves. And of course, there is so much to entertain us. Society is in many respects, entertaining itself to death, as some social commentators have put it. We spend so much of our time being entertained. Why should people come and consider this message, the message of the Old and New Testament, that forms one coherent whole? Why should they? If indeed they even know the Bible is incontestable. Most uh, in the secular humanist society we live in today don't realize 
we are now living in a profoundly biblically illiterate culture. And so the assumption is that this is totally removed from modern life and, th and therefore has a problem of relevance. At best, some people will acknowledge that the Christian message is of some psychological benefit. Uh, and the kind of approach they take is that, well, meditation and yoga and perhaps crystals or horoscopes, uh, feng shui, these kinds of things, well, that's what helps me and that's what gives me a holistic spirituality in my life. You do Christianity, I do a bit of... Well, and round and round we go, and of course that's fine. Fine, if that's what you like, if that's what helps you, if it's of some psychological benefit to help you get through life, then all well and good. But at worst, people assume that it's a form of self-delusion. It's a crutch for those who are unable to face the stark reality of life. Now, this is one of the most baffling of all the objections. The, uh, the assumption is that people like us this morning on a Sunday, or perhaps tonight as well, are coming to church because we are deluded. And we have, uh, suffer from this form of self-delusion because we delusion because we don't want to face reality as it really is. Uh, we want to hide from it. And so these people suggest that religion gives people a little relief from the anxiety of life. In the same way that some people will play golf to relieve stress and tension or play tennis or uh, go to the gym, oh, you go to church. Well, you know, good. Well, we're the, we're the same then, aren't we? And this is the assumption. And as long as we keep it to ourselves, as long as the Christian keeps it to themselves, that's fine. Now, of course, there, are, there is the hard-nosed skeptic, and the skeptic goes a little further and suggests that Christianity does for the intellectually weak what the hedonism, that's the unfettered pursuit of pleasure or drugs does for others. It provides a sort of false and unreal atmosphere. And in that unreal atmosphere and in that false atmosphere we soothe away our troubles for another Sunday and uh, in the pressures that we face Monday to Saturday we come back the following Sunday to have another escape from reality so we're ready to face another meaningless or miserable week. And that often, often is the assertion of the sceptic. People just feel comforted by it. And this seems to be much of the popular view today. It's not that the message of the Bible is so much wrong as it is antiquated, irrelevant, with nothing to say. It's a form of escapism. And yet people really don't know what it says. Now this kind of person, of course, and by the way, this is going somewhere. and We will get there in just a moment. <laughs> just bear with me. This kind of skeptic usually believes that they're arguing from a very sound and objective and detached position. And they very rarely looked at the basic assumptions and the basic presuppositions that undergird the things that they are saying. But they too have a faith position. Things that they have accepted without any vestige of proof whatsoever. And they are giving their lives to it and they assume it's right. And they assume that they are there in neutral detachment sitting in judgment upon various religious positions and of course that is the illusion. Consequently, Christians are often regarded in that environment with a degree of patronizing contempt. Well, there, there, you're a Christian and you need that. For those of us who are able to face reality and who have a brain, we're not. 
And of course, this seems to be the error that is made by so many. But Paul himself was ready to admit in 1 Corinthians 15, if I recall correctly, in his discussion about the resurrection, that if it hasn't happened, if it's not true, then our faith is worthless and we are in fact to be pitied above all people. If this message is not true, if the holistic message of this book, that as we view the world, as we view reality through the spectacles of the Bible, if it's not true, then we are a pitiful bunch. And indeed we are here deluding ourselves. But the fact is that this book does speak about reality and that is essentially why we are here. That is what we believe Now before we dismiss this objection out of hand, we have to be fair to the person who is in this position and acknowledge that there is something criticism. Because many who claim to be religious and many who even claim to be Christian, in fact do treat the Christian message as though it were one among many options, a kind of hobby or sport or pastime because we're not fit enough to go jogging. Or because we have uh, other, uh, 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 we have a just a simply a different interest. We're interested in ancient history, and unfortunately, because many, sadly, as Christians, do not live out the Christian life from day to day, they do not see all of reality through the interpretative spectacles of this book. Because this is not the cornerstone of their lives, then we, of course, are open ourselves up to this misunderstanding. But of course, we have to be careful here. Just because Christianity is misused, as if it were another opinion among many, it doesn't mean there is in it. Let me summarize by, my uh, preamble by saying this. Most people's understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. And when, as an evangelist and as an apologist, whether I be in a church or a university campus, I start with that premise. That most people's understanding of the Christian message is founded on a misunderstanding naturally leads to objections based on false assumptions. Any of you who are believers and who are familiar with the Bible will know that the last thing the Bible is, is an attempt to soothe away your troubles and escape from reality. As though we were taking some sort of uh, hallucinogenic palliative that we've been given by the doctor every Sunday so that we don't feel the pain of life and we don't face reality as it is. This book, in fact, the Bible, offers a radical solution to our problems. It claims to be able to analyze it correctly and provide the solution as to why man is as he is today, and that's generic man, it includes women also, and how we can be put right. And ultimately, of course, that that revelation is in the person of Jesus Christ. The first thing that... Jeremiah highlights is the problem of deceit and delusion in the human heart. My colleague uh, Ravi Zacharias tells a wonderful uh, folk tale from India called The Merchant and the Thief. There's an Indian, uh, uh, he is a, to start with, he is a small merchant, he's a fruit seller. He buys and sells fruit and he becomes envious over a period of time of the wealthy merchants in his town. They live in a bigger house, they've got more money, they can put their kids through good schools. I suppose, you know, it would be like living in Stouffville, like Charles. Um, and he, he became envious. I live in Stouffville also, actually. Uh, he, he became envious of these, other, these wealthy merchants, and he decided, well, I, I, I'm never going to get there. 
So he started, as a petty thief, he started to steal fruit from other merchants and exact too much money out of those who were buying from him. But it still wasn't satisfying him, it still wasn't enough, he still didn't have enough to buy a bigger home and send his children to good schools. So he decided, well, I need to pull off a much more effective and much more uh, financially rewarding theft. And he was aware of a certain merchant who would make a a journey once every year to see his family, and it was a week's walk to the west. And one year he planned to uh, catch up to this merchant on his journey, pose as a merchant himself, and stay with him, and on the way, steal his jewels, because he rightly presumed that this merchant would take his most precious jewels with him. So, on the journey, the, uh, the thief caught up, posing as a merchant, ingratiated himself upon the good nature of this merchant, and travelled with him. But the merchant slowly began to become suspicious of this man. And when they came to the first inn, they, were, they had to share a room because it was so busy, and they were given several things. They were given a mat, a pillow, a bowl, and a bar of soap, and a room to share. And so they went into the room, and the thief suggested that they it in turns to wash and, of course, to change and set their beds out. The thief said, well, I will go first, I'll wash on the balcony, you set your bed out, get changed, and then we'll swap vice versa. The thief's plan, of course, was when the merchant was washing to steal his jewels, to rummage through the room and steal off into the night. For the entire week, this was the habit of the thief. Every time it was the merchant's turn to go onto the balcony, he ransacked the room, turn, looking under the, uh, the merchant's mat, under his pillow, under the uh, floorboards, in every nook and cranny, in his bag, in his clothes, and couldn't find the jewels. Every night his frustration grew. The, the final night he still couldn't find the jewels. As they woke in the morning, he was so frustrated and the merchant could observe it. And so the wealthy man put his hands on the thief's shoulder and he said, Listen, I know what you've been doing. I know that every day of the week you've been seeking to steal from me and rob my jewels. He said, but each night the wealth was closer than you imagined. For each night as you searched the room, I had placed the jewels under your pillow. (laughs) The deceitfulness of just a story that goes to illustrate the deceitfulness of the human heart. And the amazing thing is that when you open this book and you read through the pages of the Bible, you find constantly that we are confronted with human beings often at their worst, in their madness, in their indifference, in their foolishness, in their hypocrisy, and in the baseness at times of human life. It's not always pleasant reading. It's shocking. And some of it, even as believers, we can be embarrassed about. You find the greatest kings and the wisest among them one moment in all their glory and pomp, honoring God, and the next minute you turn around, they're groveling in vileness and baseness and having to be confronted by God's prophets about their sin. And this just seems to be a remarkable fact of the Bible. Warts and all, vices and virtues, it's all there. And we see this paradox, we see both the possibilities open to this amazing creature called man, and at the same time, his awful potential. His potential genius and beauty and moral excellence, and at the same time, the wickedness, the deceit that is caught up in the human heart. You only had to read the paper. A few weeks ago, I was looking at the Globe and Mail to read about the man from B.C. who shot and strangled his six children to get back at his wife 
and then cut his throat in front of her. Thomas Morris, the Christian philosopher, asks this question. How can the same species produce both unspeakable wickedness and nearly inexplicable goodness? How can we be responsible both for the most disgusting squalor and for the most heartbreaking beauty? How can grand aspiration and self-destructive impulses, kindness and cruelty, be interwoven in one life? This is something of the mystery of the human condition. And it's the Bible that brings an explanation for this. It's the Christian message alone that uh, faces us with the naked truth. And that's why it makes people uncomfortable, of course. The reason why it's so difficult to raise Christian and biblical issues in the public eye today, and why it's so offensive in the political and judicial world, is because it confronts us as we are. No book in the world matches the Bible, not for escapism and unreality, but for forthright realism. This is anything but escapism. This is no hobby. I mean, what sort of a drug and pastime is that? Now, there's no secular anthropology that can deal with the Bible's view for diagnosing our ills and yet accounting for our strengths. There's no secular anthropology that can do the same thing to account for our strengths and diagnose the human problem. Now, of course, there are a huge number in our population today that take seriously the idea that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And indeed, Paul the Apostle himself says that if the Christian worldview is untrue, then that's correct. If the Christian worldview is untrue and that's all there is and it ends with oblivion, then we should just make the best of it. But the Bible tells us it's not all there is. And it expounds the great tragedy of life in great detail. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you have an answer to modern existentialism, to the modern philosopher. You, you ask the question, the Bible has already dealt with the question already. Read the wisdom literature of the Bible. It faces the great tragedy more than the greatest of tragedies. And yet... It regards death not as the end, but the transition into a new final destiny which is so uncomfortable to many of us. Because it brings up in us our recognition of accountability, that we will ultimately be accountable. So I want to suggest this morning that this book exposes and analyzes life with terrifying clarity. Listen to how uh, King David in the Psalms accounts for this glory and rubbish in man. First of all, he reflects on the glory. Listen, for you have made us a little lower than God. Elohim is the Hebrew word there. And crowned us with glory and honor. You put us in charge of everything you made, giving us authority over all things. There's one aspect. And then Jeremiah could say with equal truthfulness, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it? These two things that need to be held in tension as we reflect on human beings. Perhaps one of the most influential Christian thinkers in my life has been the 17th century genius, the mathematician, philosopher and scientist, Blaise Pascal. And in his Pensee, he wrote this, What sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things feeble earthworm, repository of truth, 
sink of doubt and error, the glory and refuse or rubbish of the universe. I wonder if you have asked yourself, who really knows you? Excuse me, I'm wrestling with a Canadian cold. And it seems to be a different virus to those in England. Who really knows you but yourself? We couldn't share many of our thoughts, desires, or even some of our actions with our nearest and dearest. Why? Because we would be fearful of being repugnant to them if we express, express things absolutely as they were. There's a sense in which there are certain inevitable secrets which cause an alienation to be present in the human condition. To be fully known by any human being would be frightening because we would be totally vulnerable due to their knowledge. We would perhaps be frightened that our friends would be wounded by what they knew about us and our enemies would potentially use what they knew to manipulate and control us. It led Pascal to ask a very appropriate question. How many friendships would actually survive if people knew what we said about them behind their back when they weren't present? I mean, think about it, even your closest friends. Well, you know, he's a lovely guy, isn't he? But uh, she's a delightful person, but, you know, she has got the... And if we were a fly on the wall... How upset and hurt would we be? How many friendships would even survive? This is something of the loneliness of the human condition, that we have essentially two selves, if you can look at it that way. One, our public persona that we polish and that we add certain characteristics to, the, the, people we, the person we want people to believe that we are. And so we add characteristics and attributes to that person why? Because we know that the person that we really are at times, we fear that we ourselves would be rejected. We're ashamed of what we are because we know what we could be and should be. And even when we're being open, we are, our openness is always colouring itself in the best possible light. Because that's something of the human condition. We can't help ourselves. This is what we do. And Jeremiah, it seems to be telling us that our thoughts, our desires are so deep-seated that we can even deceive ourselves. I mean, it's possible even as Christians, but for those who do not know Christ, we deceive ourselves. And it's this blinkeredness that the Christian message is seeking to deal with. We twist and distort and color in our favor, so Jeremiah asks, who can know it? Who can know it? Many people, of course, are not really concerned with what's right or wrong, but how much they can get away with. Uh, many, be fresh in many people's minds, the Enron scandal that happened recently and similar financial-type scandals that make the news. The uh, Canadians up in arms about officials fiddling their expenses. Uh, European uh, Union bureaucrats creating their own imaginary companies to extort money because we, we trade on illusion. In fact, it's to a certain degree that we don't know what's in the minds of others in society that keeps society ticking over. Because if we knew exactly what was there, it would be so difficult to trust. And so we work so hard on making an impression. Maybe you've written a resume. 
Maybe you've read one as an employer. There's certainly a measure of how creative somebody is. How much actual truth is in those things is another question. The polishing of the public persona. And we have to face it. We must recognize that we have these hidden motives and desires, that we are an enigma to ourselves, and that our measure of happiness is often based on what people don't know about us. Now you may be saying, well, this is awfully bad news. When's the good news in this message coming? I mean, is this also negative? Well, let's just remind ourselves quickly that we also feel like dispossessed kings and queens. Think for a moment about what people are capable of. The art. The poetry. The, the symphony. The mathematical and scientific genius. The literary brilliance. The philosophic brilliance. Engineering feats. Architectural beauty. The things that human beings are capable of. When was the last time you put a CD in and listen to Beethoven or Bruckner or Mozart or Mendelssohn. There's something incredible about what God has put in human beings. Something of his image. Consider recently, as I was, the uh, recent account of a Canadian commuter who, seeing an elderly lady fall onto the track, as everybody else was watching, uh, jumped onto the track, pushed her up against the wall, put himself between her and the train in order to, to protect her, and it would have been certain death for him, and probably her in any case. The train stopped just in time. The heroism of which human beings are capable. The love that moves us, the music that lifts us, the moral excellence that touches us and makes those tears sometimes roll when we're watching a film. Because there's something there that God has put there. You see, human beings are something of a contradiction and a mystery. You have a man like Ernest Gordon, whose story is told in the recent film, To End All Wars, where he was tortured in a labor camp during the Second World War. And in the end, he was crucified by the prison officials in place of another man. He gave his life for this other man. The same war in which a whole nation is taken over by an obsession to eradicate six million Jews. This same nature capable of both these things so diametrically opposed. The human history recorded in this book, the Bible, as you read it also in secular history, shows this greatness and this awful distortion of our original nature. And this is how now the Bible accounts for it. That we retain this instinct, this moral splendor that we were meant to exhibit somewhere inside, but we fumble in the darkness because of our fallenness, because of our corruption. And is that not the condition of Canadian society today and Western culture today? And the challenge of missions today? The distortion of truth, the corruption of nature? Well, the Christian message responds that, of course, we have fallen from our true estate from what God originally intended us to be and that we need to be rescued, that we need to be healed, that we are broken and we need to be mended, we need to be saved. The Bible makes us face ourselves and it makes sense of us. This isn't an illusion. And I put it to you, if you are an inquirer today and if you're joining us on the television and you are thinking through various worldviews, I put it to you that the biblical message is the only one that can account for the condition of the human heart. It's the only one that makes sense of human beings and provides a livable solution. And that is the contention of the scripture. 
We know we're dissatisfied. Nobody needs an argument of proof for that. We desire change. We have unrealized hopes. We have these unquenchable desires. We have unexpected frustrations. We know that present pleasures are false and absent pleasures are vain. We feel somehow dispossessed of what we should be. We know our greatness, yet we know our weakness and our wretchedness. Now I hope I'm stretching you this morning. I hope I'm making you think. You might think, say, well, aren't you you're denigrating human beings? Aren't you saying they're worthless? Not at all. What I'm saying and suggesting this morning is that the fact that we recognize our moral weakness and our wretchedness and our imperfection and our unfulfilled desires, that marks us out as being truly great. When was the last time your dog or your cat or your budgie reflected on such things and knew it was wretched and felt the need for forgiveness or felt it needed to repent and was wrestling with guilt? They're simply not capable of it. Not capable of reflection upon God, not morally aware as God has made us. We're not just advanced animals who've arisen from the goo through the zoo to you and just somehow the hairless ape has discovered that it's more practical not to kill your neighbour. On the contrary, it is through this sense of lostness and alienation that we recognize our fallenness. Wrongdoing and rebellion entered into the world and it ruined that relationship. And now men's hearts are deceitful, as Jeremiah puts it, and alienated from God. And can I say to you that that is the message of this book from beginning to end. You can't tear out the first 11 chapters of this book, the Bible, and then think the rest will make sense. It's a fully orbed message. It's through this message, it's through this worldview, it's through this plot line that we make sense of reality. It's on the authority of Scripture. And I encourage you, even as believers, to get into it and to delve into it and to understand it so that we can be effective in sharing this wonderful message with those in our communities, in our families, in our sphere of influence. The Bible alone understands the human paradox. We have this idea of truth, but the philosophers can't get there. We have this idea of holiness, but we can't reach it. We have this desire for happiness, but we can't seem to be happy. And it all points to the fact that we have fallen from, whence we were from what we were originally created to be. And we're trying to get back to the garden desperately. And introduced into the New Testament is this wonderful reminder that we can be crowned with life. We who were kings and queens who were dispossessed back there in the dawn of history can be crowned with life again because Christ, the second Adam, has come into the world. And he's come to undo the curse and to, to deal with the problem of sin and thereby deal with the problem of death and alienation and lostness and suffering and to restore us to himself. Jeremiah wonderfully reminds us here that God is deeper than all our pretenses, that he sees through it all, that we can't hide anything from God. It doesn't matter how much you polish the outward persona, whether you've got a pinstripe suit or not. It doesn't matter. God sees right through it all. No matter well, how well educated or polished our manners may be, we may drink our tea like this. But it hasn't, doesn't get to the root of the human heart, the problem of the human heart. God sees through it all. And if we ever console ourselves or congratulate ourselves with the idea that nobody sees, nobody knows, God sees. 
God knows. He knows the thoughts in our minds. He knows a word before it's on our tongue. He knows when we sit, when we rise. He perceives our thoughts from afar. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. His eye is on a sparrow. And he knows when it falls from the sky. Nothing escapes his notice. And that is why it's so terrifying in some respects to read the words of Jeremiah in verse 10. I test the mind, I search the heart, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God will hold us accountable for thought, word and deed. A terrifying thought to actually have to confront God and face God without Christ. A terrifying thought. Imagine you were in a cinema today. That this in fact wasn't the church meeting, but you were sat in a cinema. On the, on the back here was a huge screen. And alone, totally alone, you sat in this building and you watched your life, thought, word and deed. You'd be here for a while, I know. And as you are, at times, smile, but then at other times, utterly devastated by what you see and totally mortified, an angel pipes up and says, at the end of the film, stay where you are. There is a second viewing. Everybody in the film is now about to take their seat. How would you feel? That's something of what it would be like to be held accountable before God. But Jeremiah, not content to fool himself, not content to pretend, not content to avoid reality, because this, as we've said, is the, the antithesis of unreality, of the avoidance of reality. It is facing reality. He's not content to do anything less, and he looks in the mirror and he's horrified. And he recognizes in verse 14 he needs to be healed. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. That he needed that. There was nothing in himself that he could depend on. He was tired of make-believe and trying to cure himself and playing hide-and-seek with God. Maybe that's a recognition that you have today. That you're tired of playing hide-and-seek with God. You're tired of unreality. You need to face yourself. The Christian message begins here. Yes, it hurts. It begins with a negative. It begins with bad news. You cannot comprehend the good news until you know there's been some bad news. What's good news to somebody who never knows there's bad news? And the bad news begins here with the realism of Jeremiah. A place where we need the integrity to face ourselves as Jeremiah faced himself. And Jesus taught that we need to let go of our cleverness and our vain self-effort and to see that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be what we were created to be without his interposition in our lives. And the wonderful message which we bear, of course, and which we've been singing about this morning is that through Christ's death and his resurrection, because of his blood, because he took the penalty for sin upon himself, that despite our fallenness, we can receive forgiveness and cleansing and the indwelling spirit of God giving us the power of a changed life. And do you know what happens in the Christian? A new synthesis takes place. What happens to the glory and rubbish? Christ in you, the hope of glory, the scripture says. The glory of Christ comes in and burns up all the refuse of sin in our lives. 
and is transforming us from one degree of glory into another. This is the wonderful message of this book. This book is real history about real people in real time, in real places. There is nothing more real than this. And it confronts us in the 21st century in Ontario, Canada today, and it has a message for us today that through the human condition, through this recognition of the paradoxes we've discussed, this glory and this rubbish, these unquenchable desires and unrealized hopes, this greatness and this wretchedness, this moral weakness, God is pursuing us in it. And he's shaking us in our consciences. And he's coming to us in our minds and addressing us through our hearts in creation. And he's pursuing us. This internal conflict, can I suggest to you, this alienation that we feel is one of God's most important signposts that we need to come to Christ, that we need to face ourselves, and that we can know forgiveness and cleansing and the power of a changed life. In it, though we flee from God, he pursues us still. Let me close with the poem that I'm reminded of, Francis Thompson's great poem, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up-vistered hopes I spared and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly, our fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. Can I appeal to you this morning that the hound of heaven pursues us in our humanness and in our fallenness, and he calls us face ourselves and to come to the cleansing pool which is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.